Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, episode 3.40, The Collapse of Canada. Welcome back. Before we get going for this week, I have a couple of housekeeping measures that we need to take care of. First, this is a reminder that I will be doing a question and answer episode to wrap up this season. If you have a question that you would like me to answer about the colonial era, the time to send it in to me is now. I'll be taking questions until the day I post the second part of our season in review. If you are wondering when that might be, the answer is actually pretty soon. Our next episode is going to mark the end of our series on the French and Indian War, and from there we are going to be heading into those review episodes. So if you have any questions, get them into me. With that, it is time to head towards the campaign of 1760. Although the British had enjoyed widespread victories in 1759, there was at least some sense of lingering disappointment for everybody that the clock ran out before they could bring the whole of Canada crashing down. The French had been desperate to hold on to something, anything really, in Canada in 1759. They clung to the hope that if they could just maintain a foothold in Canada during the winter months heading into 1760, peace in Europe may prevail and save them after all. To be clear, the French had reason to hope. The parties in Europe were tired of the war. Peace feelers had been circulating around Europe for a while now. However, as you can probably guess by the name of today's episode, peace was not in the cards just yet. Although peace was not reached that winter, back in London, William Pitt could sense that the end of the war was indeed coming. He was desperate, therefore, to secure a complete and total victory over Canada. Pitt did not want the French to have a foothold in Canada to cling to. He wanted them and the threat that they posed to the British colonies gone. For the French, their singular goal was to survive long enough not to be completely purged from Canada prior to the end of the war. Heading into 1760, their objective remained the same as it had been in 1758 and 1759. Survive long enough for peace to prevail, and then they could recover their lost territory during the negotiations. The French knew well that losing their position in Canada made it far less likely that they would be able to regain control of their increasingly threatened colony. The French plan for the year was twofold. First, they knew it was going to be critical that they held on to Montreal. At the moment, Montreal was the last major holding of the French in Canada. Second, they wanted to recapture Quebec. From a strategic standpoint, if the French could recapture Quebec, it would mean that the British would have two objectives for 1760, as opposed to being able to focus all of their energy on a single point. At the beginning of the year, their sole aim, the one that they would spend all their manpower towards, was Montreal. However, should the French retake Quebec, it would mean that the British would now have to focus on a pair of targets, as opposed to just the one. The British had three armies ready to go in 1760. First, you had James Murray and his men up in Quebec, where he had been named the new governor. To the south, you had the army at Crown Point, now under the command of William Haviland. Finally, you had Amherst who had taken control over the British army at Oswego, the same group that had toppled Niagara the year before. Of those armies, Amherst had some 12,000 men under his command. 
Haviland likewise had around 3,500 men at his disposal, and Murray, for his part, had right around 4,000. Of all the armies, it was the one under the command of Murray that was in the most serious danger. The British had captured Quebec the year before, which was, as we discussed, a major victory. However, for the British, they had a very serious problem when it came to actually holding on to the city. The French were well aware of this, and in fact, it made up a significant portion of their strategy for how to retake the city in 1760. During our last episode, we had briefly met the Chevaliers de la Vie. He had been trying to retake the city. However, Quebec was surrendered before he could return, and he decided that it was an inopportune time to move on the city. The plan instead for Lévis was to allow the British to enjoy a nice long Canadian winter, hoping that those harsh conditions would soften them up a little bit. Lévis then would move on Quebec in the early spring, just as soon as the St. Lawrence had thawed. The plan for Lévis is that he could deliver a decisive blow before the British could get the naval support in place to reinforce the city. That way, he would strike Murray and the British inside the city when they were at their absolute weakest point. And, for the most part, this is exactly how events played out. Lévis carefully bided his time while amassing a force of almost 7,000 men. The British had left a garrison of over 7,000 men of their own to hold Quebec throughout the winter. However, by the time that we reached the spring, Murray had less than 4,000 men who were in any condition to fight. Furthermore, the fortifications in Quebec were in a sorry state. The British had spent considerable time and effort trying to rebuild as much of the city as they could back in the fall of 1759. However, the Battle of the Prior had devastated the city, and the British objectives quickly shifted towards making sure that neither they nor the civilian population froze to death. Once winter actually arrived, the British would expend the vast majority of their energy on collecting enough firewood to fend off the frigid conditions of a Canadian winter. This is not to say that the British spent zero time trying to improve the damaged defenses of the city, but that with everything else going on, they did not have as much time as they probably would have liked for that task. On April 23rd, the river had cleared enough for Lévis to proceed downstream to Quebec, and three days later on the 26th, Lévis and his men made their landing above the city. Although the British had some nominal defenses in the area, they put up little resistance, instead quickly withdrawing into the city itself. By this point, you really have something that looks roughly like the reverse of what had existed the year before. Lévis and his men were forming up along the Plains of Abraham, with the British further north holding the city itself. This is the moment that Murray makes what is, on its surface at least, a somewhat baffling decision. Levy had initially planned to lay siege to Quebec and cross his fingers that the French reinforcements would reach the city before the British reinforcements. At no point did Levy actually believe that he was about to engage the British in an open field battle. Murray, however, had other ideas, and he would indeed decide that a second battle was necessary to hold the city. From a more conventional standpoint, one would imagine that the prudent decision for Murray would have been to hunker down and cross his fingers that the British Navy would make their way up the St. Lawrence and save the city. However, before we can completely condemn Murray for what is about to happen, and guys, I'll just get it out there right now, it's not going to be great, 
let's consider the situation from his point of view. Murray's army was in a pretty bad way come April 1760. They were sick and exhausted from the long winter. The defenses around the city were crumbling, and Murray knew that a French siege was likely not going to end well for him. And really, for both the Chevaliers de Levy and Murray, the real question was who was going to get support first. Murray was really not feeling too hot about his chances of holding the city in the face of a French siege. Murray therefore decided that his best move was a decisive attack. Levy certainly would not see it coming, and if Murray could force him into a retreat, it would buy the British critical time for the Navy to make their way up the St. Lawrence to reinforce him. And so that is exactly what Murray did. Murray's plan was to try to push the French army up against the cliffs, cutting off their ability to maneuver. Yet, right from the beginning, things get off to a rocky start for the British. On April 28th, Murray was able to get somewhere between 2,500 and 3,800 men who were healthy enough to fight and send them out to engage the French. The first problem that they encountered was that the British were far slower moving than Murray had hoped. While the weather was improving, there was still a significant amount of snow on the ground. Underneath that snow, there was a whole lot of mud. What Murray really needed here was for his men to move fast and strike a quick blow before Levy knew it hit him. Unfortunately for the British, the poor conditions rendered this impossible, as the men were quite stuck trying to make their way through the thick mud and snow. Making matters worse for the British is that their artillery was now getting stuck in that same mire that the men were fighting through. Despite these hardships facing the British, when they actually engaged the French near St. Foy, they have a surprising amount of initial success. Largely because Levy was not expecting an open engagement, the French were trying to fall into battle formations as the British made their first strikes. These initial skirmishes did succeed in pushing the French forces back. However, the victories would prove fleeting. As soon as the French formed up, they quickly began attacking the British along both flanks, which promptly began to give way. The main British line, not wanting to become completely enveloped by the French, found themselves being forced into a hasty retreat. Because the ground was pretty much nothing but deep snow and mud at this point, the British could not save their precious artillery pieces, and had to spike them, if possible, and just leave them in the field for the French to capture. Furthermore, the British suffered an appallingly high number of casualties, with over 1,000 on the day. Within a few hours of the battle beginning, the British had retreated back within the temporary safety of the walls of Quebec. Levy had advanced his men up onto the Plains of Abraham, and in a mere of the previous fall, had begun the process of digging trenches to begin the siege of Quebec. By May 11th, the French were in position and had begun the bombardment of Quebec itself. Yet, the bombardment of Quebec would be short. Although Levy was clearly in an advantageous position, Murray was about to catch a huge break. Within days of Levy opening up his bombardment, a British ship of the line came sailing up the St. Lawrence River. Soon, more British ships began moving in towards Quebec. On May 16th, the small set of frigates that the French had, six in total, were destroyed by the British Navy. For Levy, 
despite everything looking so good just days before. Losing his already meager naval forces made clear to him that he was not going to heroically retake Quebec. Knowing that the survival of Canada depended on having as many men as possible for its defense, he gave up on Quebec and pulled his men back towards Montreal. Through little action of his own, and indeed it is arguably in spite of him, Murray was going to hold Quebec. If you are curious just how close of a call this actually was, the French Navy was entering the Gulf of St. Lawrence on May 14th, just days behind the British. Critically for the British, the ability to hold Quebec meant that heading into the main part of the campaign season of 1760, there would not be two targets. Instead, the British were going to be left with a singular focus. With Lévis' retreat, Montreal became the last French foothold in Canada. With Quebec now firmly in British control, all eyes turned towards Montreal with a single mission in mind. They wanted the French out of Canada. Earlier in this episode, we discussed that the British had three armies in the field. You had Amherst at Oswego, William Haviland was hanging out with his men near Crown Point, and Murray, who was a bit worse for the wear, was in Quebec. What William Pitt was calling for, and what Amherst intended to deliver, was a massive attack, with all three armies converging at the same time in Montreal. By any metric, this was going to be a difficult feat. Moving tens of thousands of men to a single location from three different positions, and having everybody arrive simultaneously is a difficult task even today, let alone in 1760. So, we know we have three armies now that all need to get to Montreal. I plan to go through each one of these armies individually and look at how they each get there. But before we do that, I want to take a moment to turn to the French preparations. Looking at a map, Montreal looks like a potentially defendable location. Located in the middle of the St. Lawrence River, Montreal sits on an island, conveniently named Montreal Island. Now, the problem here for the French is that Montreal was far less defensible than Quebec. Unlike Quebec, there were no large daunting cliffs to help protect the city. Despite the inherent risks that normally accompany an amphibious invasion, the island was large enough that preventing an enemy army from landing was always going to be a difficult, if not outright impossible, task. The main town itself was on the eastern side of the island and was protected by a wall. However, most of the city was built of the lumber from the nearby forests. This made the prospect of an artillery barrage focused on the city a terrifying prospect. Nobody was excited about the idea of being stuck inside an inferno, fueled by all the wooden structures inside those walls. Really, for the French, their only meaningful hope was to prevent the landing in the first place. The French realized that their only true hope was stopping the British before they got anywhere close to Montreal. Bougainville, who we last saw hanging out above Quebec, was in charge of the series of islands located along the Richelieu River. The French were still holding on to their position at Illinois, which, if you recall, is where they had pulled back after abandoning Crown Point. Really, this is what the French defenses looked like everywhere. The French established batteries along the St. Lawrence, both up and downstream. They primarily hoped that they could slow up the British defenders and bring them to a stop. Beyond placing sporadic guns along the banks of the St. Lawrence, however, the only other defenses along the river 
or the occasional rapids. In Montreal itself, other than the wall, the only real defense was Levy and his remaining regulars, in addition to a handful of militia. For Levy, he may have been left with as few as 2,100 regulars who were in any condition to fight. As far as the militia, I cannot find a great source on how many of them there were, with most sources indicating that there had been large-scale desertions by this point. Likewise, it is worth mentioning that as the few remaining French-allied Indian tribes took in the situation moving through 1760, they too quickly realized that the inevitable defeat of France was coming. Short of some amazing good luck, which the French had experienced previously in the war, they were probably not going to win the day. The pragmatic effect is that as the militia melted away, not interested in fighting what amounted to a suicide mission, the vast majority of those remaining French-allied Indians also withdrew. For the moment, however, the plan of the French was simple enough. Prevent the British from reaching Montreal. With that, let's check in with our armies and examine the path that each would take on its way to Montreal. As we have just spent the first half of this episode with James Murray and company, let's go ahead and stick with him for just a little while longer. Likely wiping some sweat from his brow, following his very nearly disastrous meeting with Levy, Murray now had to begin the process of regrouping and figuring out just what he needed to do next. After surviving what was, by all accounts, a brutal winter, and then dealing with Levy, when Murray left Quebec on July 14th, he did so with approximately 2,500 men. Murray had reason to be concerned. He was moving up the St. Lawrence, which meant that his journey would take longer as compared to those moving downriver. Murray likewise expected that the journey up the St. Lawrence was going to be a perilous one, as French positions along the river could continue harassing him as he moved slowly to the south. Despite these fears, however, they really were for naught. For the most part, the French gave little opposition for Murray to deal with. As Murray and company made their way south, they found that, for the most part, the Canadians they found were putting up no resistance and were indeed eager to start trading again with the British. With minimal resistance, Murray reached his objective just to the north of Montreal on September 1st. The second army we turned to was the one that was under the command of William Haviland. Haviland had inherited the army that the year before was under the command of Amherst himself. Heading into the year, the situation remained virtually unchanged from the year before. Following the British victories of Corailin and then Crown Point, the French had withdrawn to the relative safety of Ilanois in the Richelieu River. Haviland began moving towards Montreal on August 16th, so more than a month after Murray had left Quebec. Much as with Murray, Haviland was worried about the real prospect of French harassment as he made his way along the Richelieu River. This was certainly a real fear considering that the French were holding Illinois, an obstacle that the British were going to have to deal with. The job of defending the river fell to Bougainville, who was facing a pretty daunting prospect. The biggest problem for Bougainville is that he nearly found himself trapped between Haviland and Murray. Recognizing this danger, rather than holding his position, 
Bougainville ended up pulling all the way back to Montreal. This is not to say that there were no engagements or skirmishes. However, mostly Bougainville recognized the precarious position that he was in, and felt that it was better for him to get to Montreal, rather than having his army destroyed trying to stop the British advance along the Richelieu River. On August 19th, Havilland began shelling Illinois. Bougainville held out until the night of August 27th, when he and his men abandoned the fort. From that point, he would spend more time burning French holdings along his retreat than making anything resembling a meaningful stand against Haviland. Once again, we also see that the Canadians along the river put up almost no resistance to the British, and generally were happy to take the loyalty oath that the British were requesting. By the beginning of September, Haviland and his men were approaching Montreal. Compared to the 3,500 men that were under the command of Haviland, or the 2,500 that Murray brought along from Quebec, Jeffrey Amherst was standing with the single biggest army left, with right around 11,000 men actually marching out of Oswego, where he had left from on August 10th. Amherst made it into the St. Lawrence without any real problem, before he hit his first real bit of resistance in the form of Captain Bichot. Now, if that name rings a bell, it is because we spent a good deal of time with Captain Pierre Pichot a few weeks ago in episode 3.37, as he was the French commander at Niagara. Well, he is back with the job of preventing Amherst from making it to Montreal. Now, to his credit, Pichot really does try to stop Amherst, considering that unlike for Murray or Haviland, Amherst actually does run into meaningful resistance. Pichot had taken up a position at Fort Levis. You know, just in case we did not have enough people or places called Levis already this week, which was located on an island right in the middle of the St. Lawrence. Now, if you are looking for the island on a map, you are not going to find it, as projects along the river have actually ended up with the site being submerged. So, the fort that we are discussing right now is currently located underwater in the St. Lawrence. I will mention too, just to completely avoid any kind of confusion, this is obviously not the same thing as Point Levis, which we talked about in the past two episodes, and is located on the eastern bank of the St. Lawrence across from Quebec. If you are trying to figure out where the fort was, it was located along the border of upstate New York. Things get off to a good start for Pichot as he did hold a critical position and was indeed able to completely jam up Amherst and his army. Pachot's position at Fort Levis completely blocked the British access further into the St. Lawrence, and meant that so long as Pachot held Fort Levis, the British simply could not advance. Although he held an ideal position for blocking the British advance down the river, not always perfect for Pachot. For the second time in our French and Indian War series, poor Captain Pichot was comically outnumbered. Compared to the 11,000 that Amherst had under his command, only 300 Frenchmen garrisoned Fort Levis. So, is this the part of the episode where I tell you how 300 Frenchmen were able to defeat a massive British army and turn the tides of the war for France? Is this going to be a repeat of Montcalm's defense of Fort Corailin? Well. No, that is not going to happen. However, to his credit, Pichot and the defenders of Fort Levis did at least prove to be a nuisance for the British. 
Amherst and company were forced to come to a complete stop, set up positions on the land across from the island, and open up what would amount to a two-day bombardment of the fort. Bashot never really stood much of a chance of actually defeating an 11,000-man army with just 300 troops, and after a few days of shelling, Pachot really had nothing left he could do and surrendered the fort. While the British had won the day, the entire process of establishing batteries and the subsequent bombardment had cost Amherst about a week of time, which, all things considered, really was not a bad show for Pachot and company. With Fort Levis defeated, absolutely nothing other than some treacherous sections of the St. Lawrence, which would in fact cost Amherst over 80 lives, stood between his army and Montreal. After navigating the rapids with help from Indian guides, on September 6th, Amherst began landing on the backside of Montreal Island. It must be mentioned that the timing of this entire mission really is something to behold. Within just days, the British had coordinated a landing of some 15,000 men. There were no armies held up by weather or the enemy. Rather, everybody arrived on time and ready to immediately bring the fight to an end. With the arrival of the huge British army, the Chevalier de Lévis had pulled his men inside the safety of Montreal itself. In this fashion, Montreal had really become the last foothold for the French in Canada, and even their hold over it was rapidly shrinking in size. Even until the last moments, in the days after Murray and Haviland had arrived, but before Amherst, Lévis was desperately trying to secure himself an Indian ally that could help break him out of this otherwise desperate situation. However, much as the Chevalier de Lévis must have known, the Indians were also aware of what the outcome was going to be. Much to the disappointment of Lévis, they had already concluded a peace with William Johnson. For Lévis and the French, there was going to be no help from their former Indian allies. By Sunday, September 7th, 1760, the British were forming into battle positions right outside the walls of Montreal. The situation in the city was hopeless and everybody knew it. They were looking out from behind walls at a 15,000-man British army that was ready to move on the city. This as compared to only 2,100 or so regulars ready to defend it. The walls were in too poor of shape to meaningfully withstand a siege. And by this point, many of the Canadian militiamen had seen the writing on the wall and got out while they still could. Governor Vaudreuil was able to recognize the futility of this situation. He knew that it was all over. At 8 a.m. that morning, he sent Bougainville, writing to Amherst requesting a ceasefire until noon, which Amherst accepted. At noon, Vaudreuil set out his proposed peace settlement. Over the next day and a half, they would hammer out the official capitulation of the French, not just of Montreal, but for all of Canada. The terms of the surrender protected the civilian population of Canada. However, much to the anger of Lévis, it denied the French the honors of war as they were transported unceremoniously back to France. The French officers would burn their standards rather than allowing them to be taken by the British. The French and Indian War was effectively over. The French hold on Canada had officially collapsed, and the British were now in control. 
Following the end of the war in Canada, Amherst sent the provincial troops home and used his remaining troops to help secure the area along the St. Lawrence River Valley. By this time, however, it was little more than a mop-up mission of the few remaining pockets of resistance. Mostly, it involved informing some of the closest allied French-Indian tribes of the new order in town. Following the collapse of Canada, there would continue to be years' worth of tensions and battles between the colonists and the Indian tribes. I want to mention that this isn't something that I just plan to gloss over and ignore, because it is important. However, we are going to lead off Season 4 with that instead of packing it all into the French and Indian War. So if you are curious why I'm not transitioning into either the Cherokee War, and yes, in 1760 there will be a Cherokee War, or Pontiac's War, that's the reason. With that, a war that had begun with the killing of a French emissary by a British patrol commanded by George Washington back in May 1754, finished not with a climactic battle, but with a whimper. The French had lost Canada, and for the British, after a string of humiliating losses early in the war, they had won a monumental victory. However, it is important to understand that the end of the French and Indian War is not the same as the end of the Greater Seven Years' War. The French and Indian War was just the North American component of a conflict that had become a war that now stretched across most of the globe. Next time, we are going to wrap up our series on the French and Indian War by looking at the Greater Seven Years' War. To understand the events that are going to come next season moving towards the American Revolution, we must first understand where the British Empire stood at the end of the war. Until then, I hope you all have an excellent two weeks. I hope that you are staying healthy and staying safe. And I will see you back here next time as we bring the Seven Years' War, our series on the French and Indian War, and indeed our narrative for this season, to a close. <laughs>